think as we were singing that last hymn, oh, praise the name, I think we got a glimpse of what it must have felt like for Adam and Eve to walk with the Lord in the cool of the evening in the garden as the cool breeze began to descend uh, on us. And so the temperature, I think, will uh, start to become a little bit more bearable as we go on this evening. Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Uh, Mark chapter 15, we're going to read together verses 33 uh, to 47 uh, in a a few moments, Uh, but please keep that open before you. Uh, We are almost at the end of our short series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It is certainly the shortest of all the Gospels, and we try to move through it at quite a pace. I think tonight is number 19, next week number 20, um, and so I trust that it's been helpful to, to move quite quickly through the gospel, to be able to take in uh, the big picture storyline that Mark has tried to convey to us uh, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. But tonight we come to this portion of scripture, and Shane and I, as we planned out the series, deliberately decided to... Uh, to pause a little bit um, around the events of the crucifixion and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are just looking at this short section this evening. Last last week, Shane drew our attention to uh, verses 1 to 32, and he made the comment uh, last Sunday uh, that in dealing with this portion of Scripture, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we are entering holy ground Uh, And we are to approach passages like this with extreme reverence and caution, for they lead us to the very heart of the gospel, explaining things to us which Peter says even angels long to look into. And the passage that we're going to come to this evening is really part two of what Shane started last week as we come to consider tonight the death of Jesus on the cross The passage that we're going to read of Jesus' death has led many people over the course of the history of the church to ask the question, did God die on the cross? And we must recognize up front that we are dealing here with, with deep mysteries of the essence of God and the nature of the Trinity. If we get things wrong by perhaps oversimplifying the the nature of Christ as both fully God and fully man, or if we overemphasize his earthly nature over his divine nature, we get ourselves into grave heresies which have plagued the history of the church for 2,000 years. And so my aim tonight is not to try and get into the deep philosophical debates around uh, the death of Christ and what it means in terms of the nature of God and the Trinity, Uh, I hope that as we simply work our way through Mark's account and consider the details of what he reveals to us, that you and I will be brought into a better place to appreciate the wonder of the gospel, what it means that the Son of God died and how that profoundly impacts uh, our lives on this earth and the eternity which is to come. Just before we read uh, together Mark's account of the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, I was greatly helped in my preparation this week by one commentator who did not do what most of the others did do. Uh, You see, we have four gospel accounts, and all four of the gospels reveal in some detail the events of the death of Jesus. 
And Mark's gospel is quite thin on some of the details. For example, we know that Jesus had seven sayings on the cross, which by the way, we're gonna be looking at in detail next year as we sort of head toward Easter, and so you can look forward to that and pray for our preparation for that. But what we find in Mark's gospel is that he only lists one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross. And so what most of the commentaries did as I was reading them, as they are working through Mark's account, is that they kept on adding in all the details from the other gospels which Mark didn't give us in order to try and help us have a fuller picture. I think it's helpful sometimes to make the connections with the other gospels, but we need to remember that Mark's gospel was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to include certain details and to leave out other details. And so that taken as it is written, the emphasis and the main point is God's emphasis. It's God's main point that is being made. And I think we run into a danger if we try to import all the missing details from the other gospels into Mark's gospel, uh, and we miss the emphasis or the thrust of what Mark was trying to convey. So with that in mind, let's read the account of the death of Jesus uh, as Mark has recorded it, uh, and then let's learn what God would have us to learn from this passage. So let's move on and consider um, from verse Mark 15 from verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Just uh, so far in God's word this morning, and so as we just stand back, uh, we're going to just pause and consider what Mark has chosen to include in his account of the death of Jesus. And we're going to see tonight five things which pertain to our problem as human beings, specifically that of sin 
and its consequences, and how the death of Jesus not only deals with our problem, but actually reverses its consequences and its effect uh, on our lives. And so let's start in the first place to see darkness, the symbol of our problem in verse 33. We find ourselves at midday, the sixth hour, when the sun would have been at its highest and brightest in the sky. And Mark says to us, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness over the whole land from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a verse like this, perhaps for others with inquisitive minds, I want to know how. How did it happen? Was it a a thick fog which blocked out the sun? Maybe it was a a super long solar eclipse. Maybe it was a, a desert dust storm that swept across Calvary. And there have certainly been many other fanciful ideas put forward over the years. But to ask how, I think is to miss the point. There is no natural explanation. And even if God did choose to deploy natural causes to accomplish this, which we are not told, the fact is that God brought about this supernatural darkness, not just over Calvary, not just over Jerusalem, but over the whole land of Israel for three hours as his son Jesus was hanging on the cross. And so far more important question is why. What is God wanting us to understand by this great darkness? And we don't need to look very hard in our Bibles to know that darkness in Scripture is very often and very clearly a symbol of our sin and the judgment of God against us because of our sin. This is seen many times in the Old Testament prophets as they looked forward and prophesied about the coming day of the Lord. Let me just give you one glimpse of this from the prophet Amos uh, in Amos chapter 5 and then chapter 8. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. There are many other passages in Scripture that we could look to, but specifically as we come to the New Testament, this symbolic understanding of God's judgment, symbolized by darkness, is expressly taught by Jesus himself. Darkness And judgment is waiting for those who reject Christ's invitation into the kingdom of heaven. And so speaking against the unbelief of the Jews of his day, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8 verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a description of hell. And Jesus uses the concept of darkness, the symbol of darkness. But not only is it a symbol of what awaits those who reject Jesus on the day of the Lord's judgment, in actual fact, the the Bible describes each person who is currently alive 
who is not a Christian, who is in rebellion and sin against Jesus in the same way. Look at John chapter 8 and chapter 12. Again, speaking to them, uh, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Unless you have trusted in Jesus Christ and what we will learn about of his death on the cross this evening, you remain in darkness. And so here we have three hours of darkness. And this is one of those times when, when God condescends to, to our human level to help make a a deep spiritual truth, simple and clear for us as humans to understand by giving us a physical or a, a tangible illustration of a profound spiritual reality. Crucifying the perfect Son of God was the lowest depths which human sinfulness could sink to. And the three hours of darkness was a simple but clear and prolonged visual aid to explain a spiritual truth taught so many times in the Bible, that we are sinners living under the dark displeasure of God and awaiting an eternity of darkness under his judgment. In the second place, then, Mark goes on to show us dereliction, the consequence of our problem. Now, the three hours of darkness was not simply a symbol of our problem. It, it was certainly at least that. But it was more specifically linked to this next point, which is the consequence of our problem, namely that of separation from God. You see, darkness, in a sense, was the shadow. Dereliction is the substance. It's the reality. In verse 34, Jesus explains what had taken place in the spiritual realm during those three hours. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried, verse 34, with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those three hours, Jesus was experiencing the consequence of sin. Not his own sin, obviously, for he was the perfect lamb of God. But in the great transaction of substitutionary atonement, Jesus in our place, he hung on the cross. And it's a verse that Cliff read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so it's clear in Scripture from the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned, that no sinner can dwell in the presence of God. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God is so pure that he cannot look on evil. Psalm 5 verse 4, evil cannot dwell in God's presence. Revelation 21, nothing unclean or detestable or false is found in his presence. 
So as we look back, the whole structure of the Old Testament was one of creating separation between sinful people and a holy God. We can think of the tabernacle, the structure of the tabernacle, and then the temple, courts and priests and washings and, and sacrifices and things of that like. We'll come back to that a bit later. All there to separate sinful human beings from a holy God. During the three hours that Jesus hung on the cross, the, the darkness symbolized what Jesus experienced. What he experienced as he bore our sins on the cross. He personally suffered the consequence of our sin, which is separation from the presence and the blessing of God. In those hours on the cross, as Jesus became sin for us, he endured the wrath and the judgment of God through separation. And here is where our human limitation really robs us of the extent, the true extent of Jesus' suffering and judgment in our place. Because none of us can ever fully grasp what it meant for Jesus to be forsaken by his Father. I think we've all experienced to some degree or another the hurt of abandonment in our lives. Perhaps it was a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend who walked away from us and they forsook us. But there were always others who loved us, others who cared for us. And yes, even in those moments when perhaps we felt all alone and entirely forsaken, the sun still shone to remind us that God had not forsaken us. But in these three hours on the cross, not only had all of Jesus' disciples forsaken him, not one of them was there to support him through this agony, but the removal of light the removal of the sun revealed the extent of Jesus' true state of forsakenness, God-forsakenness, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Coming straight from Psalm 22. The eternal begotten Son of the Father. Think about this. Jesus was eternally begotten. He's always been the Son of the Father, the beloved Son of the Father, perfectly loved by God from all eternity past, perfectly in fellowship with the Father, now in His humanity on the cross, clothed in our sin, He is entirely forsaken by God. And He suffers the consequence of our sin and rebellion against God. And so we have dereliction. That's the consequence of your and my sin. In the third place then, Mark goes on to describe death, the culmination of our problem in verse 37. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This short verse describes the trajectory of the storyline of all humanity since the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, God said to Adam, 
You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Ever since the day that Adam and Eve sinned against God, death has reigned on the earth. Look at Romans 5 and Romans 6. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the culmination of our problem of sin and rebellion against God. It's because of sin that we die. We don't die because of, of an accident or because of a disease or because of old age. We die because of sin. And death reminds us all, from the greatest to the least, that we are all sinners under the curse of sin and under the judgment of God. So for Jesus to truly be our savior, our complete substitute that, that fully satisfies the, the wrath of God against us, he not only had to suffer the consequence of our sin, which is separation from God, but he actually had to take upon himself the culmination of our sin, which is death. Now here's where we need to be very careful tonight, and our text in verse 37 helps us. Verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And while it's fully correct to say that Jesus died, John tells us that he breathed his last. Mark tells us that, and the other gospel writers confirm that Jesus remained fully God even in his death. He gave up his spirit in death. It was not taken from him by death. There's a big difference. You and I do not give up our spirits in death. It is taken from us. But Jesus, being fully God, gave up his spirit in death. R.C. Sproul is a helpful guide here. He says we should shrink in horror from the idea that God actually died on the cross. The atonement was made by the human nature of Christ. Somehow people tend to think that this lessens the dignity or the value of the substitutionary act as if we were somehow implicitly denying the deity of Christ. God forbid. It's the God-man who dies, but death is something that is experienced only by the human nature because the divine nature isn't capable of experiencing death. I think this is a helpful corrective to even our own thinking about death because death for us as human beings is not the end of our existence. It's the separation of our souls from our bodies to either experience uh, eternal, the eternal consequence of having rejected Christ in this life, then we will experience eternal darkness, eternal separation from God in hell, or it is to experience the eternal consequences of having accepted Christ on earth, which is eternal light and eternal communion and fellowship with God in heaven. So just as for us, death is the end of life for these bodies, but our souls live on, so as Jesus breathed his last, his body died, 
and his spirit entered immediately into the presence of his God and Father in paradise, along with the spirit of that thief on the cross beside him, when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So yes, the wages of sin is death, but death is not the end. It's simply the culmination of this earthly journey, this earthly trajectory, ushering in one of two eternities of our choosing. Eternal separation from God if we choose to reject Jesus, eternal life with God if we choose to accept Jesus. So this is now where the story turns. And although we're only gonna get to the resurrection next week, at this moment in Mark's gospel, for all of you matrix who have just written physics, we have a perfectly elastic collision. Just as a, if you're confused, just follow me for a moment. Just as a rubber ball that's falling to the ground reaches its maximum downward velocity as it hits the ground, that the story of the gospel is like a supercharged elastic collision. It doesn't just bounce back in the opposite direction to the same height from which it fell. No, the story of redemption at this point, it turns around 180 degrees and it rockets off in the opposite direction all the way into heaven. We're gonna get there next week. But for today, it's like Mark zooms in to that moment of Jesus' death. It's one of those ultra high speed, super slow motion cameras. And just when you think this would be the end of the story, the moment when the, when the ball hits the ground and just stops, Mark shows us that this was not the end, but simply the turning point as all the, the purposes of God from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for himself. It did not come crashing down with a great thud. It didn't shatter into pieces as Satan had hoped. No, God's plan and God's promises and God's power was about to be unleashed. All the supernatural power and promises of God was about to be released on the earth to accomplish more than you and I could ever imagine. And so at this moment of Jesus breathing his last, we see in the fourth place deliverance, the solution to our problem. At just the point when Satan thought his victory had been won, at just the point when humanity, uh, sorry, when humanly speaking, the, the story of Jesus ended as he breathed his last, Mark tells us something quite amazing. Please look at verse 38. I don't know if we have any English teachers here tonight, but I'm sure that I got struck over the fingers with a ruler in primary school for starting a sentence with the word and. And I wish I knew back then, Mark 7, 15, verse 37 and 38 and 39, I could have told my teacher, ma'am, it's in the Bible. <laughs> we meant to read verse 37, not as the end, but as the transition into verse 38. Let's see that on the screen. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. 
for the past 1,500 years, the story of the Bible from Moses to Jesus had been one of separation from the presence of God. The Old Testament is full of, of rituals and sacrifices and the construction of the temple and priests and washings. There were walls, there were chambers, everything an elaborate system to keep sinful people out of the presence of the holy God. It was an elaborate visual aid for 1,500 years to teach God's people that access into his presence was forbidden because of our sin. And the final barrier, after all the other barriers, up to the holy of holies, or the most holy place, was a huge, thick curtain which hung in the temple. Now what's very significant here in Mark's story, the whole chapter 15 has been focused on the events of the cross. Suddenly now in verse 38, Mark breaks away from Calvary outside of Jerusalem and he takes us kind of straight back into the middle of the city, into the middle of the temple. And he tells us that at the moment that Jesus breathed his last, this curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Just as verse 33 was a supernatural darkness which fell on the land, here in verse 38 we have a, a supernatural ripping of the curtain in the temple. Now for any Jewish person, this event would have been the greatest of all religious catastrophes. For any Jewish person, they understood that this curtain protected sinful people from a holy God. And so this ripping of the curtain would surely mean instant death, not only for the priests that were serving in the courts around the holy place, not only for those who were gathered in the temple, but for all humanity. But instead of destruction, Mark tells us that this ripping of the curtain meant deliverance the holy wrath of God, which would otherwise have exploded out of the holy of holies like an atomic bomb, destroying everyone across the face of the earth, the wrath of God had been propitiated. It had been appeased through the death of Jesus on the cross. And so instead of separation and condemnation and destruction, there is now acceptance and access and deliverance. The death of Jesus accomplishes deliverance from darkness and death. It accomplishes reconciliation to God for all who would believe in Jesus. And so here Mark records for us the deliverance of a Roman centurion who understood and believed Jesus. Let's read again with all the ands. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. How do we know that this man was, was saved on that day? Well, Matthew 16 verse 16, we have the place where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here, as Jesus dies, remember this gospel written by Mark under the direction of Peter, as the curtain in the temple is ripped apart, never to be reinstated because its, its purpose is now nullified in the death of Jesus, Mark tells us that this Roman soldier declared Jesus to be the Son of God, just as Peter had done. We need to close, and in the final place, I want us to see the continued upward trajectory of the story, and this is all even before the resurrection and the ascension, which we'll get to, to next week. And in the last place, we see devotion, the reversal of our problem. In the last few verses, verse 42 to 47, we have the account of Jesus' burial, Sometime between three and six in the late afternoon before the sunset, one of the respected members of the religious council in Jerusalem, a, a member of the Sanhedrin, a man who we are told had been looking for and anticipating the kingdom of God, Joseph of Arimathea, he came to the realization who Jesus really is and he devoted his life to Jesus. You might say, well, Clinton, I think you're reading a little bit too much, and, and I would argue that we've made too little of Joseph of Arimathea. You see, the story of the gospel doesn't stop with your and my deliverance. Praise God for our deliverance from death, from darkness, but that's just the turning point. The power of the gospel is it reverses our trajectory. It reverses the entire direction of our lives. As we trust in Jesus, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are transformed from sinful cowards into courageous servants. Instead of being driven away from God, we now offer ourselves up to him in worship. Joseph was a member of the same council which had sentenced Jesus to death. The ones who had called out publicly for his crucifixion. And yet now we read in verse 43 that Joseph took courage and went and asked for the body of Jesus. That act would have cost him everything. Normally, it was the family of the dead person who would request his body. But they did not. You would think the disciples would have gone and asked for his body. But they all fled. And yet we see the power of what Jesus accomplished in his death already at work in the heart of this Jewish religious leader. The power of Jesus' death, the power of the gospel, we, we see is good news for everyone. First, there was this wicked, low-life criminal on a cross next to Jesus. He's saved. Then, as Jesus dies, this Gentile Roman military official, he's saved. And now we see a Jewish religious leader. He's saved. How do we know that he was saved? Well, the other gospels tell us so. Uh, tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he was a disciple, but just like Peter and the other disciples, he was a, a secret disciple. He was a timid, fearful, perhaps even ashamed disciple. 
He was an undercover Christian up to this point. But when Jesus died, when the curtain was ripped from top to bottom, something changed in this man. I just loved uh, the testimonies we heard this morning at the baptism of the way in which something changed in the hearts of those who were baptized this morning. Couldn't explain it. Can't tell you why. But I know that something has changed. The death of Jesus accomplished that in this man's heart. He became courageous and he devotes himself to Jesus. We know the story and where it heads in the next chapter. But right now, Joseph didn't know that. He didn't know that he was taking down the body of Jesus to put him in a tomb only for him to rise in, in three days' time. And so there's actually a certain tragedy about Joseph's story which we would do well to consider this evening. William Barclay, one of the commentators, says this. Joseph is the man who gave Jesus a tomb when he was dead but was silent when he was alive. It's one of the commonest tragedies of life that we keep our wreaths for people's graves and our praises until they're dead. It would be infinitely better to give them some of these flowers and some of these words of gratitude when they are still alive. Now, if that is true for humans, fellow human beings, fallen, weak human beings, how much more true should that not have been for the Son of God? But he says we cannot blame Joseph too much for he was another of those people for whom the cross did what not even the life of Jesus could do. When he had seen Jesus alive, he felt his attraction, but had gone no further. But when he saw Jesus die, and he must have been present at the crucifixion, his heart was broken in love. First the centurion, then Joseph. It's amazing thing how soon Jesus' words came true that when he was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all people to himself. So as we pause tonight to, to reflect on the death of Jesus, can you truly identify with Mark's emphasis, understanding what the death of Jesus has delivered you from so that your life is now lived in devotion to him? This Roman centurion, this religious Jewish leader, they came to believe in Jesus because they witnessed and they understood his death. And yet, as had no clue that he would rise again. Despite that, one through his words and one through his deeds, they devoted themselves to Jesus. So the challenge is, where does that leave us this evening? We stand on this side of the cross. But not only this side of the cross, we stand on this side of the resurrection, this side of the ascension into glory. You and I stand on this side of Pentecost as the recipients of the Holy Spirit. How much more reason do we not have to publicly declare, surely Jesus is the Son of God? Are you looking for and living for the kingdom of God as Joseph was? Have you taken courage as our two candidates this morning, Geordie and Jamie, 
as they testified to being identified with Jesus Christ, to believe in him, have you committed your life to him, to worship and serve him, and to own him as your very own? If not tonight, then you're still in darkness. It's as simple as that. And only eternal separation from God awaits. But oh, if you trust in Jesus tonight, the words of the prophet Isaiah will be true of you. Isaiah 9 verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them a light has shone. Well, may today be the day when God who said, let light shine out of darkness, may he shine into our hearts to give the, knowledge of the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you do know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, may we be encouraged to take courage, to take courage and to live our lives devoted to him. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again this evening for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your great plan of salvation that you founded and purposed before the foundation of the earth to save a sinful people to yourself. And Lord, we want to come tonight and confess that we have perhaps too easily, particularly those of us who've grown up in Christian homes and in the context of the church and the ministries of the church, we've perhaps talked the talk, but we've taken the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for granted. As we've been able to just pause this evening, may something of the realities of what you accomplished for us on the cross shine brightly into our hearts cause us this evening to, to leave here knowing that something has changed. Something has changed because as with the centurion and with Joseph, we have come to grasp the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Lord, if that be true of us tonight, may you cause us to be a, a courageous people who not only identify you, but live for you and serve you with all of our lives. And may you be glorified in us and in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name.